1: Is it about life that is the older you get, the more time you spend looking back? Well, we found the same thing happens with podcasting. And as we've gotten better at this and our audience has gotten bigger, some of you might not have heard or found our early episodes. As we near 150 episodes, it can be a bit of a pain in the backside to scroll that far back in your app. So we're revisiting some of our early favorites, slightly edited, in a new regularly recurring series we call In Case You Missed It. And today's guest is Pat Thomas, the author of Listen, Whitey, The Sights and Sounds of Black Power. Thanks, Pat, for dropping in with us.
0: Sure. Happy to be here.
1: Let's talk about the name of your book. In his introduction of your book, Documentary filmmaker Stanley Nelson says Listen, Brother might have been a more apt title. He goes on to say that he understands why you went with Listen, Whitey and admits it's a better title. So can you tell us about the title?
0: Well, Listen, Whitey was the name of a documentary done right after the assassination of Martin Luther King, where basically somebody was walking around the streets of urban America asking you know, disenfranchised blacks about the death of Martin Luther King. Uh, I never have seen the documentary. I think it's extremely rare, but Folkways Records put out an album, basically just the audio sign That was called Listen, Whitey. And I just thought it, you know, just has such pizzazz. And I've never regretted doing it because it's just become one of those titles just, you know, people pay attention to.
1: It certainly resonates. Uh, and I was just curious, you were going to mention Stanley Nelson, but uh, I wondered how it was received both amongst whites and blacks and if there was a difference of opinion or, or, or what it meant to them.
0: Uh, no, there wasn't a difference of opinion. I think everybody loved it. The book has been highly embraced by the black community. I've done all kinds of events at black colleges and black communities. You know, monkeys have to live with it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's all good.
1: Well stated. Um, early on in your book, you differentiate between black power and black militancy and the Black Panthers and those kinds of groups. Can you provide some background on that? Because I think you're right, they do tend to be used interchangeably.
0: Well, yeah, I think to most whites, just sort of put all these people under the umbrella of black militants. What I realized after really digging into all the various groups, the Black Panthers, the US organization, which were very focused on African traditions, So, you know, the thing that's important to remember, you know, Black Panthers never wore dashikis, Black Panthers never took on African names. Everyone might remember Herbie Hancock uh, was calling himself Mawadishi, I think is how you pronounce it. And he was, you know, briefly under the spell of something called the Us Organization, which was a group of Black nationalists. So these groups are all have their own thing. I think we all tend to lump them in together unless you really sort of peel off the layers of the onion and dig in.
1: You write in your book that as the Black Power movement expanded, it would force Jimi Hendrix, who was an icon to white hippies, to reconsider his apolitical stance. How so, and what was Hendrix's response, both musically and otherwise?
2: Well,
0: first of all, you know, Jimi, you know, obviously he was an African-American guy, and he'd had the same struggles that a lot of Blacks had had, but Jimi was just into being Jimi. He was Jimi Hendrix, legend first and Black man second. You know, and a lot of Black Panthers and Black nationalists and other people kept taking meetings with him and they were trying to, you know, the Panthers and others wanted to make him into a spokesman for their causes. And, you know, Jimmy had a lot of empathy for that, but it just wasn't his bag. But nevertheless, you know, he did make some statements. The The song Machine Gun most famously recorded on uh, January 1st, 1970 at the Fillmore East with the Band of Gypsies, was his statement about the war at home, the war in Vietnam. And so he was sort of musically saying with that song, you know, that there's conflicts on the streets and at home. The other thing is, is the song Voodoo Child, he many times dedicated that song to the Black Panthers in concerts.
1: Yeah, it seems like most of the things that I recall him saying about that period, it was more the peace and love thing, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, he was, you know, he was very much a kind of a black hippie, for lack of a better description.
1: And just, you know, was more concerned
0: with his art than politics, for sure.
1: You mentioned the band of Gypsy, you know, that was Buddy Miles. and
0: Yeah, Billy Cox, right. That was an all-black band, which, you know, again, was, I think Jimmy put those guys together. Not for a political statement, uh, but just because that's what you want to play with. But nevertheless, people see what they want to see. So they thought, well, okay, Jimmy's making a statement. It's an all-black band.
1: Yeah, and as you mentioned, you know, the black power movement would expand in a lot of different directions. And predictably, it, it had a huge impact on the music of the day. You had Marvin Gaye's What's Going On? or James Brown's Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. They were hugely popular, especially with black audiences, but they found a niche with white audiences as well. What's interesting to me, maybe you can speak about it, is how far apart those two performers and those two songs are, yet they still resonated kind of across the board.
0: Well, you know, James Brown was being chastised by fellow Blacks because he was pals with, like, Hubert Humphrey, and they were I think they were seeing James Brown as a little bit of an Uncle Tom, and Brown kind of responded with, say it loud, I'm Black and I'm proud.
1: So that song was kind of a response then?
0: Well, uh, you know, it, I mean, I can't get inside the, the mind of James Brown. I'm just kind of riffing on what was going on at the time. But yeah, Brown was being chastised for lying himself with mainstream white politicians. And this was one of his responses. You know, that was just an incredible song for so many reasons. Kind of uh, broke open the path for other more provocative songs. For example, there's a Sly Stone song called Don't Call Me Nigger Whitey. And then there were things like The Temptation, A you know, Message to a Black Man. Yeah, so there's a the whole thing. You know, the, the Marvin Gaye story is a little bit different. That's a much more complex story that a lot of people don't realize. The uh, song What's Going On is originally put together by one of the Four Tops, and it's actually was inspired by white radicals. Four Tops were on tour. They were in the San Francisco-Oakland Bay area, and they saw a protest by a bunch of white radicals getting their heads bashed in on TV. So one of the Four Tops started sort of penning a thing about that. Meanwhile, kind of at the same time, Marvin Gaye's brother, Frankie Gaye, had been in Vietnam, came home, and started telling Marvin how horrible it was to be fighting in the jungles of Vietnam. So, interesting enough, the four-top guy happened to run into Joan Baez backstage in England at a concert TV show they were both performing on, and she showed some interest in doing something with this skeletal version of what's going on. Keep in mind, it doesn't necessarily have that title yet, right? Right. Right. Anyway, for whatever reason, Joan, it didn't happen. And so when the Four Tops guy brought it to Marvin, Marvin was already politically energized about Vietnam, and then he finished the song. And that's how the whole thing comes to fruition.
1: And it's a much more global concept, too. You know, I think it's a little bit easier for white folks to embrace. And it's a little more difficult to be singing, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud when you're not. But what's going on was something on a different level, you know, that the whole country at that point was responding to in different ways.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, we kind of have apples and oranges. One song is inspired by being black. The other song is inspired by Vietnam and just police bashing, in this case, white skulls, although it could have been black skulls. They're apples and oranges, a very different song.
1: Yes, but uh, what's going on definitely has an inherent blackness to it, you know, with some of the talkovers and the, the outros and those kinds of things. It feels fairly street to me even today.
0: The other interesting thing is a lot of people have never connected the dots, but Sly Stone's album called There's a Riot Going On, that title is a direct response to Marvin's What's Going On.
1: Oh, wow. I did not know that. So let's talk a little bit about Motown. You, you brought in the Four Tops, and you know Marvin Gaye, of course, recorded for them. Uh, the music as a whole, it, it had such a crossover appeal with pop and white audiences, but yet it was equally popular with Black American audiences. And the music was about as far away as one could be from Black power music, right? You know, the whole
0: Motown thing is very complex on a social political level, but you know, one of the things that Motown did was make black music platable for white audiences. Motown was selling records on the R and B soul charts and the same records were also selling on the mainstream pop charts. And so I think that Barry Gordy and his whole team and the musicians did an amazing job of making Black music safe for white America. However, as the 60s wore on, Black consciousness and Black power expanded. Barry Gordy was getting letters from fans saying, hey, how come you don't let the Supremes wear their hair in a natural, meaning an Afro? So, you know, so he was getting a little bit of heat of not letting these artists be, for lack of a better word, more Black. Right. Uh, And finally, this all kind of comes to a head when Martin Luther King is assassinated in April 68, where some of the younger Motown staffers go to Barry Gordy and say, you know, we need to be making a more political statement. And so out of that comes a Motown subsidiary label called Black Forum, that even a lot of hardcore Motown fans are not aware of. And basically, these are about a half dozen albums that come out between uh, 70 and about 74, and they include posthumously Martin Luther King's speech about why he's against the Vietnam War, a Stokely Carmichael speech about Black Panther Huey Newton called Free Huey, a really amazing, militant, kind of almost proto-hip-hop album by the legendary Black poet of Mary Baraka called Who Will Survive America. Black Panther, Elaine Brown, was a singer-songwriter, Maybe kind of a more traditional piano-based singer-songwriter album. There's a Langston Hughes album. There's even an amazing album of black soldiers being interviewed in the jungles of Vietnam of why they hate being in Vietnam. It's very interesting to see that there's a whole other side to Motown that that many of us uh, don't know anything about.
1: Well, there's lots of nuggets in your book that I didn't know. This label geared to fairly radical, specifically black content, is kind of a shock because Motown was such a mainstream form of music entertainment. I'm guessing that was intentional, or at least you know, on a business level, that Gordy, who you know was all about keeping the product moving and the profits, uh, to keep that on the down low. Is that a fair assumption?
0: You know, I, I interviewed a former Motown exec who was there at that time, and he said it was hard to get even the black retailers and black distributors to carry these records. So in other words, they'd say, "Okay, we'll take a thousand copies of the new Supreme single." We'll take 1,000 copies of the new Temptations album. And why don't you give us uh, 50 copies of that uh, Stokely Carmichael, Black Panther, Huey Newton speech, right? (laughs) So, you know, I mean, I'm not judging Barry for doing this. In fact, if anything, I applaud him. Barry had never really talked about this label in all the countless interviews that he's done, you know, over the last 30 or 40 years. And right after my book came out, all of a sudden he's doing an interview. He's mentioning Black Forum and how proud he is of it. And then the other thing that happened that was pretty remarkable, even though Motown sold their music catalog off to Universal Records decades ago, the Gordy family has always overseen the Motown Museum in Detroit. And again, you know, months after my book comes out, all of a sudden, I mean, every Black Forum record is on display for the first time ever in the museum.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, he has a wide legacy, and it's interesting that this is something that would come out so late in that legacy and perhaps be something that stands the test of time for him.
0: Yeah, very much so. And and the other thing that just happened for people listening and going, how can I hear these albums? I'm happy to report that Motown Universal Records just about a month or two ago re-released the Mary Barak album. Uh, Who Will Survive America and the Elaine Brown album on vinyl LPs. And that's the first time those records have been reissued in any format since they originally came out in the early 70s. So you can find them again.
1: You mentioned Sly Stone. He would go on to be just a, a, a massive uh, superstar and influential person, as would Gil Scott Heron, who would push the envelope even further from what's going on. Or, or James Brown, uh, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, those kinds of things. Something very much, much more specific in Gil Scott Heron's case. Could you talk about those two?
0: Uh, well, you know, Sly, I mean, you know, I mentioned uh, that provocative title earlier. He also, of course, had a song called Stand. You know, which to me means, you know, stand up for your rights. Uh, You know, Sly was political, but he was also, you know, he was delivering a universal message. You know, everyday people, why can't we all get along? He also had a mixed race band of blacks and whites and one of the few bands that had male and female in them. So, you know, Sly is... Very, very, you know, groundbreaking, but I think it also applies to Sly, which is Sly wasn't hung up about being black. He was just into being Sly. In terms of Gil Scott Heron, he's obviously very, very driven by uh, social political matters. Obviously, the song um, Revolution Will Not Be Televised. One of the things that I encountered during my research, and, and this isn't really a big surprise, but I hadn't really thought about it before I wrote the book, is, you know, the last poets were a big big inspiration on Gil Scott Heron. And I started to see, you know, that he you know took various lyrical ideas from them early on. And then I found a interview recently with one of the last poets who said, you know, when we played some university, you know, before Gil Scott Heron was famous, he turned up backstage, you know, just to kind of soak in the, uh, the vibes. And it's a pity that Gil kind of lost the plot when he became a crackhead, but he certainly did, you know, many, many, many amazing albums before that and other great messages like it's winter in america
1: that song is just incredible i remember seeing him several times at a small club up here in cambridge and it was usually just him and a piano and those songs were so powerful winter in america i think you could argue is equally as relevant today as it was when it came out and in fact the revolution is being televised so
0: <laughs> yeah it it, it it is it's being televised and repackaged and rebranded constantly but uh
1: Yes, yes, yes. You mentioned The Last Poets a couple of times. That's a band I don't think a lot of people knew about. I certainly didn't until Write Good where I worked, repackaged a few of their records. You know, they forecast rap music in so many ways. You know, you have politics and music and style and branding. You can see their influence on like a Public Enemy or an NWA, the bands that are, are more that side of rap music. What do you think their legacy is?
0: I think that The Last Poets are, you know, arguably. You know, the single most important influence on rap and hip hop in the way that, you know, there wouldn't be a Rolling Stones without Chuck Berry. But, you know, I always like to dig a little bit deeper when I do these books and find yet who's the underdog below the underdog. And one of the artists that I discovered and championed in the book is a West Coast version of The Last Poets, if you will, called The Watts Prophets. They had an album in 1970 called Rappin' and a Black World. And it turns out that their early songs predate The Last Poets by something like two years or you know, something like that. So it's interesting to find out that there's there's always somebody who did it before the guy that we thought did it. Well, the Prophets, again, they're not as well known, but I found out some interesting things. It turns out that Bob Marley was obsessed with them. He talked to them before his death about trying to collaborate. And one of the Watts Prophets is actually a reverend and did the eulogy at Bob Marley's funeral. And considering the Watts Prophets, they were never on a bigger label. You know, the, the last poets had Alan Douglas connected to Hendrix behind them. So they, you know, they certainly got a better, a better shot. But, you know, both bands are very important for people to check
1: out. Let's move on to another legend. Nina Simone, who wrote Young, Gifted, and Black, was a hugely influential artist. That had a really interesting genesis that I learned about from your book. Can you go into that?
0: Lorraine Hansberry was an African-American woman. She was a poet, novelist, and and also wrote uh, screenplays. And she had written a play called Young, Gifted, and Black just before she died in 1965. And in 1968, it became an off-Broadway play. In 1969, Nina wrote that song, Young, Gifted, and Black, based on the play. And then in 1972, Aretha recorded the song and even named an entire album title as well. Lorraine is kind of lost to the seeds of time by most people, but if you Google her, see that she was a very influential uh, Black writer. And it also just kind of became a, a slogan. It's just, it's just a great saying, young, gifted, and black.
1: Yeah, that translated, I know, down to Kingston, Jamaica. There's a, a really great kind of rock steady early reggae cover of that as well. So I know that one had a lot of reach just in terms of the messaging. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media.
2: or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick-charge function,
1: So jumping ahead a little bit, so we talk about bands like that, and then in your book, which is very interesting, uh, Listen Whitey, The Sights and Sounds of Black Power, you mentioned Nile Rodgers, who was in the band Chic and Everybody Knows Freak Out, and Chaka Khan. They were rank-and-file Black Panther members. They'd become bona fide pop stars in the 70s and 80s with huge commercial hits, Tell Me Something Good. I found that surprising that those two were you know, rank-and-file members.
0: Yeah, well, you know, one of the things about... This is an era when, and I'm speaking both towards black and white counterculture now, this is an era when the counterculture and pop culture are sort of almost one and the same. In other words, you know, images of the Black Panthers were ubiquitous on TV. The Yippies, Jerry Ruben, I mean, Hoffman were ubiquitous on TV. And so it's not surprising to find out that a young uh, Rogers or a young Taka Khan are associated as teens or early 20s with the Black Panthers, because if you were paying attention and you having to live in an urban area where the Panthers were, chances are, you know, if you didn't join the party, you were going to at least embrace their message. You know, and, and, and you know, this even ties in with, you know, white movie stars like Jane Fonda embracing the Black Panthers or Candace Bergen, you know, it just, it became the, the thing to do partially because it was cool, but more importantly, because they, they were right. The Panthers needed to happen. They needed to uh, shake things up a bit.
1: Right. One of the things I would tell all of our listeners to check out your book for are some of these images, and there's one that references what we just spoke about, where it says, can you pick the Black Panthers from this photograph, right?
0: It was a little bit of a satire combined with an earnest thing. So there's, I believe, Roberta Flack is in that photo, and jazz pianist, Wes McCann, and then some actual Panthers. You know, again, this is an era where... Just wearing a black beret, whether you were a a panther or not, you know, was just part of the, again, the blending of the social, political, the counterculture, the pop culture.
1: Another chapter you open up is a jazz chapter. And you talk about the influence on jazz where you said, quote, while soul provided the soundtrack to the revolution on the streets, jazz expanded black consciousness. What was going on in the jazz world during this time? I mean, you know, how, how do you expand the black consciousness with largely instrumental music?
0: If you dive into my book, which is not just about music, but it's also a little social political history of a black power movement, there's a difference between the Black Panthers and black nationalists. Black nationalists are very centered on their African roots. Black nationalists are the ones that often would change their name. So they were into taking on, let's say, Swahili names, learning uh, African languages and phrases. While the Black Panthers were more about, we're Americans and we want to establish our Black culture here in America, not necessarily looking back to Africa. So a lot of jazz musicians, while some were inspired by the Black Panthers, many of them were more inspired by Black nationalism. And so, you know, the Art Ensemble Chicago, for example, wound up having great success in Paris. And then, you know, they wound up playing in Africa Roland Kirk started writing much more political material again, even if there wasn't lyrics. And it's not to say that all jazz guys became black nationalists. For example, Les McCann recorded his buddy's song "Compared to What," written by Gene McDaniel's, which is not a black nationalist song. It's just a great protest song. You know, Miles Davis became more political, but you know Miles is very similar to Hendrix. The Panthers were always trying to get Miles roped in, and he just didn't have any interest in that. I guess what I'm trying to say in a roundabout way is there was a an undercurrent of either Black Power, Black Panthers, and/or Black nationalism, just running through a lot of the uh, jazz culture. So it was, it was kind of a subliminal message to the listener, because again, this is mostly instrumental music. So yeah, my book is not authoritative in this, but it's a nice primer for most of us who just aren't aware of this. Uh, I kind of you know give give it a nice overview.
1: We should also note that the movement's influence, you know, it spread from soul to jazz, and as you mentioned, poetry as well. But also uh, there was the black exploitation film movement, so-called, because most of the, the movies were written, starred, and directed by African-Americans. And um, they all seemed to have really heavy-duty soundtracks attached to them. way like Donny Hathaway, Bobby Womack, Isaac Hayes, Curtis Mayfield. It seems like everybody was, wanted to get in on that. The reason I brought that up, however, is do you know what the story was with Herbie Hancock's unreleased soundtrack for a movie, a movie called The Spook Who Sat By The Door? I was looking at that the other day and it's super hard to find and like 85 bucks for a vinyl version or something.
0: The term the spook is set by the door is a phrase referring to back in the day when companies were being sort of forced or suggested well, you need to have at least one black employee to prove that you're supportive of black. Cynically, they would call the spook set by the door, which is like, OK, we're going to we're going to hire somebody black and we're going to put them near the front door so everyone knows we've got them. That's the premise of the title. However, the movie is the story of a former black CIA agent who uses all of his expertise that he learned in the CIA to start kind of a black revolution on the streets. And so the movie came out, and it was just very controversial for obvious reasons. This is, uh, the novel was written in 1969, and the movie gets made in 73. And so Herbie did the soundtrack, and of course, you know, Herbie was at one of his many peaks of his powers in 73. It's not so much that Herbie has suppressed the soundtrack, but just, I don't know if it's legal reasons or whatever, that the thing is kind of just languished in the vaults. So basically what people have done is they've just held a microphone up to their TV set and put out kind of mid-fi bootlegs, bootleg vinyl of the music with a little bit of the talking from the movie. And so I think the reason why it's like an $80 collectible is, you know, we're in between pressing, so to speak, from the bootleggers. Uh, But that's kind of the background on that
1: thought there might be some crossover there between the CIA term and then the, the racial epithet. Wasn't sure how that all worked out, but I, I did see, you know, it's, it's unusual that an artist of Herbie's stature, it, you can't find this thing
0: anymore. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, it's, it's basically what I call a, a blue leg or even a gray market release.
1: Really. What do you think the long-lasting legacy and the influence of Black Power music is? Obviously, we've spoken about rap and probably everything style, culture, politics.
0: The legacy of this stuff is in political groups like Black Lives Matter. It's unfortunately, you know, blended into things like Ferguson, Trayvon Martin. And, and so, yes, the, the music in my book is sadly as relevant than ever. You know, we had a black president, which was great, but uh, we've, we've got a long way to go as a society.
1: Well, thanks for going backwards in time with us for this episode of In Case You Missed It. We're going to try and keep this going every other week. And don't forget, if your app only shows you 20 episodes or so at a time, check out our brand new mobile-friendly website, allmusicpodcast.com, where all of our shows are instantly available at your fingertips.